Welcome to the Spot Check. Join your resident occupational and speech therapists, Amelia and Heather, as they dive in and get real with patients and clinicians about living with chronic disease. So welcome back to another episode of the Spot Check. Thank you for being here, and we really appreciate you tuning in. Last week, we heard from Carissa, our guest who shared her journey with breast cancer so far. There are just so many things we can unpack from that. So this week, Heather and I just want to dig in a little bit more about the effects of cancer treatment that someone like Carissa may experience. We don't always talk about this, but this is definitely a necessary conversation. Carissa mentioned last week that she had to go through early menopause because of her treatment. A lot of patients like Carissa, whose cancer is hormone-related, I mean, they have to take anti-hormone therapy for about usually 10 years to reduce the risk of cancer coming back. I never actually put together until the last couple of years is that when you take anti-hormone therapy, I mean, it blocks your body from producing estrogen and progesterone. You basically get an early menopause. Right. So like Carissa, I mean, she is 39, right? Yeah. And she has to deal with the fact that now her body that used to be youthful, now she's going through early menopause. I mean, she has hot flashes, all the changes that's going to happen with menopause when you don't have progesterone and estrogens. And one of the things that I learned, because one of my really good friends actually had a total hysterectomy recently, and I have to watch her go through menopause and we researched so many things. Your hormone, your estrogen and progesterone actually help you digest sugar and carbs. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So there's a lot of like now a lot of holistic approach to weight loss for women after 40 is actually keto green or like the healthy keto because when you don't have as much hormones anymore, your body cannot digest or burn down that carbs that you're eating. So that's why a lot of my patients actually, they told me after a while, I was like, I never change how I eat and I just start gaining weight. True story. True and, story. And I think it's, it's hormone related. If we never change how we eat, but our body is different, how are we going to actually manage to burn off those things that we eat? <laughs> well, I always think about that how we, you know, we cycle throughout the month and crave different things. And those are hormones changing and doing different things. And when those get depleted and wiped out, or we have to supplement those, and correct me if I'm wrong, but doesn't it take some time to get those balanced out and find a good, not only just combination or dosage, but the right one for the right per- for the right person? Yes, that is true for regular menopause. However, when you're taking anti-hormone therapy to prevent cancer from coming back, uh, you can't take any supplements to promote the hormones growing back because you're going to be negating what you're there to do. So for these women, for 10 years, they're going to have early menopause. One of the most common medicine that is pretty much used by a lot of like, or taken by a lot of my patients. I mean, I'm sure you've heard of this, tamoxifen. Oh, yeah, yeah, of course. One of the side effects that I don't even know until this year is uterine cancer. Wait, hold on. So a side effect of a medication used to help with breast cancer can cause uterine cancer. That is correct. That's why a lot of women, after they have the breast cancer treatment, if they are older, they actually just opt for hysterectomy. 
Yes, I know. It's, it's hard to sink that in for a while, right? Because you think that you're preventing cancer, but then you're actually increasing a risk for another cancer to happen to your body. So how do you make that decision? How do they decide, I'm going to make this, I'm going to trade this one thing for the other? That is a difficult choice. Well, I think because, I don't know, I feel like this will be a really great conversation with an oncologist someday. Mm-hmm. Because there, I mean, there is some really strong guideline for what to prescribe in chemotherapy. And they do clinical trials all the time to see like, okay, if this patient has this type of cancer, this age, this risk factor, this is the right regimen for them. So I think a lot of the deter- determination from the oncologist is very evidence-based. Right. And also a discussion with the patient. Okay, you are, oh, you are this age, you're 39. Do you want to keep your eggs? Do you still want to have baby? You know, because they don't, they may not want to go hysterectomy right away. I mean, like Carissa shared in her story, like initially she still wants to have a kid. Sure, sure. She didn't consider hysterectomy. But now after almost a year into her treatment, she's like, well, I don't think that's an option anymore on the table. Mm -hmm. So many decisions and so many things that you have to consider. Right. But when you are diagnosed with cancer also, I feel like the most pertinent thing on the table is to get rid of that cancer that you have. Right. Nope. Yep. I agree. So also tamoxifen, I'm familiar with it because I've treated many patients who have used tamoxifen. It has been demonstrated more reliable evidence of cognitive decline measured from onset of treatment to five to six months post-treatment in the areas of processing speed, verbal memory, compared to healthy controls. So not only are you going through all of this physical change, you're also having cognitive decline from onset of treatment to five to six months post-treatment, processing speed and verbal memory. So that's being able to remember names of objects, people's names, what you're supposed to do. Like, yeah. How do you do do your job? I have a patient who told me, I met her at a support group and she told us, like, I think she was about eight years cancer-free and said, you know, like her chemo brain is still there. I mean, eight years into it, she would, she said that, I would just be driving home from like my work and all of a sudden I don't recognize where I am anymore. Yeah, I see it a lot where I've had patients have to write sticky notes and put them on their steering wheel to remember how to get from the store, or I'm sorry, from home to the store and back. And they've done this for 15 years and they're only, you know, like 40 something. Yes. We were talking just before we got on this recording about how when we are tired, when we are stressed, when we're having all these demands on our, our cognitive load, I mean, we can't even remember half the things that we're supposed to do. Now we put, you know, a woman who's like Carissa, who's maybe 30 something, early 40, they have a husband at home, they have two kids at home, they have a full-time work. You know, breast cancer is diagnosed younger and younger, I think. So because of there's early, also early intervention, which is great, but that means we're not dealing with a population of women who is retired, but we're dealing with a population of women or men who is still fully working 40 hours a week, mm-hmm. plus cooking, cleaning, taking care of kids at home, plus having to be a wife and a friend and a daughter. Yeah, that's a lot. That's a lot on the cognitive load, not to mention the physical, but the cognitive. And yeah, you're right. So I'm looking at statistics and there is happens one in two men, one in three women outcomes for cancer rehabilitation. There's a five-year survival rate. But what I wonder too is going through all of that and having that decreased functioning level for so long, 
what does that look like in 15, 20 years? What effects does that have? You can only imagine, and I'm sure the research supports that, you know, like we see in head and neck cancer with late stage radiation, what happens further on with the brain? Right. I mean, I'm not really trying to pull any sort of unconclusive <laughs> conclusion, but, you know, recently I heard in a, another podcast, they were talking about how actually Alzheimer in women, number one, is more common, right, than mm -hmm. men. Mm -hmm. And number two, they they start early sign of Alzheimer and dementia start in women as early as in the mid-40s. I believe that, yeah. I've, I've, read the, I've read some of that research, yeah. And if we're, yes. So anyway, I'm just thinking like, okay, how much is that is actually, I don't know. I think I'll be interested to find a study with how hormone changes affect your cognitive status. Well, what's interesting is that I wonder if there's a tie-in. There's been some discussion about insulin and insulin and cognition and insulin and possibly, um, you know, a couple of years ago, they were calling it type three diabetes and in cognitive decline. I haven't seen anything about it in a little while, but it was essentially being like insulin resistant and what was happening with the brain changes. Coincidentally enough, that was an issue I believe my dad was having his white matter degeneration is he was not diabetic per se, but because of his insulin resistance, he, it was affecting his cognition. So I think that's an interesting, you know, and, and if like the medications and whatnot are affecting some of those uh, insulin receptors. That is interesting. You've heard it so much. I mean, I don't believe that keto diet is the only one and be all, but there are a lot of people who's kind of exploring it from a healthier standpoint, not eating bacon grease all the time, but you know, like right. healthy fat and greens and stuff like that. And they said their brain is a lot less foggy compared to when you eat a lot of like carb-based food. I'm that way. Like whenever I eat a lot of carbs, you've seen me, I would literally pass out. I, I just feel like there's something about that that's being, that we need to know more. Yeah, no, I agree. And personal experience, the same. So it's it's interesting. I don't want to belabor the point of the cognitive deficits, but I do want to point out that, you know, earlier in my career, I, I didn't, I don't think we knew as much as we know now, because we're just starting to figure this, a lot of this out. So 16 years ago, when I'd get um, some referrals, actually, I was grateful for them for some patients who were going undergoing cancer treatment, and they would tell me about the chemo fog, which we knew, or the chemo brain, but we didn't really know or understand like which particular areas were affected or how many people were actually being affected. So some of the newer research has shown that up to 75% of people experience cancer-related cognitive impairment during treatment. Up to 35% of those people continue to experience cancer-related cognitive impairment months and years to follow. There's about 4.5 million people can be living with persistent cognitive deficits. And those can be on, on any, and they, there's also, sorry, they can also have a later onset. So like kind of what we were talking about, and it can persist for 20 years post-treatment. So that's why we have to listen to our, to the people who are working with or talking with about the, the those little complaints they have, because they can just say, oh, you know, I just kind of forget things once in a while, or 
I just forget somebody's name, but you know, everybody does at that age because what, what may be classified as a mild impairment may not just be mild, especially for someone who before had a superior cognitive function prior to that illness. We have to consider that whole role and how that is affecting them because if they were considered high powered executive or a multitasker mom, doesn't matter. But if they had that high level before and now they can only do one or two things at a time, that's a drastic change in their quality of life. How can we help with that? And I don't think that's just a one discipline specific thing. It's a transdisciplinary approach. Right. Because I think it has to start with screening. Like, I mean, this is like a whole, like you said, transdisciplinary approach for nurse navigator all the way to social worker, any anybody that encounters this patient because they may not see a neuropsych right away. They may not see a speech therapist right away. We'll be lucky if we see them right away for rehabilitation. <laughs> yeah, right. So it may be like not five years after, you know, until they have met somebody who actually know about cognitive changes and how to help with that. So I think that's why we need to talk about it more and really not make cognitive changes an old age normal thing. Because I think we have kind of, oh, I'm just getting old. I forget this. I forget that. But I don't think it should be accepted as a common thing because I have met a few, not not a lot of them, but a few people over 90 years old whose memory and cognitive processing are still super intact. Right. They're sharp. They're just, yeah. But I also have met people who's like in their 50s and their cognitive processing is like down here. And, you know, like we don't even consider the effect of trauma in their life. You know, when you are diagnosed with that C word, what flashed before your eyes is that, oh, I'm going to die. I mean, how many people actually process that and take it into the next level, which is, oh, I am safe now. My cancer has, you know, I'm free of cancer because they always wonder when is the cancer going to come back? Right. So I think it's like that process of trauma and re-traumatizing with that fear. And if you never actually process that, I, I don't really, I can't even process on how, how much is that will affect you cognitively. Yeah. I don't know when, when that becomes for someone a point in time when they can fully exhale and say, okay, now I'm safe. Is it, it's certainly not when they go every six months or first of all, every three months for their scans and then every six months and then every year. When, when does that become an okay, I'm good now? I don't know. That's, that's a scary thought for me. I think with cancer, kind of just, I don't know, possibly forget about it until your next scan and then it comes back. I mean, even um, I have a friend who used to call it the, I forget what it's called, like the fear the scan fear or whenever, that fear that you have whenever you go to a scan because something, a little something may come back. Yeah, that, I have thoughts on that. Like, does each, does, does different cancers affect, affect that thinking differently? Like, if you see it, if it's more visible and you see those scars daily, is that a reminder and do you th- constantly think about it? Or do you just become used to it and habituate to it and be like, okay, this is just me now? I don't know. Interesting. That is interesting too, because I mean, you bring up a good point. Some people have those scars that they will remember and some people have reconstruction. Carissa did not have reconstruction, but I have heard and seen plenty of stories of people who have to go through double breast reconstruction and the journey that they have to go through to get that normal. I don't think they ever feel normal, actually. I think most of them know that it's a foreign object stick on their body now. Obviously, I'm seeing a very small percentage of these population, right? I see the people who have issues. But how many people actually have issues and never actually seek help? Right. That's, 
I don't know what the statistics are, but I think it's got to be a high number. Right. Because, I mean, I only start seeing more patients post-reconstruction who have issues with that lymphedema because I told my oncologist or our onco- our referring oncologist that we actually offer myofascial release. And she's like, oh, really? Okay, because before prior to that, she refers them to a massage therapist. However, <laughs> there was a horror story when one of the massage therapists that she referred patients to actually lift up the breast implants too hard that it detached from the chest wall. So the surgeon had to go back in and did a surgery. Oh my God. So needless to say that massage therapist did not get any more referral. And then she starts sending to us. And that's when I start hearing some of these things where my patient said, I can't sleep because I feel this pulling in my, well, my my chest or my sternum because the breast that she used to have is actually lighter. And now the new breast that she has a little heavier and it pulls more from the sternum out Mm. on her chest whenever she lay down. Isn't that interesting? So I would have never thought about that. Because, well, (laughs) I'm always have pressure there. (laughs) But no, I would have not thought about that. That's very, that's very interesting. And the consistency and the way of a reconstructed breast compared to a natural breast tissue is different. It's a little more sturdy and heavier, even though it's from your own tissue, right? From your stomach, usually. Even Well, there's two kinds. One is the when you do um, an implant. And the second one is when you use your own tissue to reconstruct the breast. But even then, the consistency is not the same. I would assume it wouldn't be the same. But, okay, if you don't mind, like, how is it, in what ways, like? It is heavier, number one. Even with the reconstruction tissue, that is, a lot of people get it from their stomach, right? To kind of reconstruct the breast. Because the doctor have to put enough fat to make sure that, because sometimes the fat actually shrink and then the breast becomes more deformed. So they need, need to pack it enough with enough fat so it doesn't shrink and deform mm-hmm. too early. That's why the breast that they have will not be like a teardrop normal breast that most people have. It's going to be like thicker and more round depending on if they have swelling or not. Or number three, they may have some scars surrounding wherever there's incision or like stitches that have to be made. So in some people, scar really thickly like they have keloids and all that stuff and some people like scar minimally so depending on even the type of skin and the type of tissue that you have you may scar really bad or you may not scar at all the more you know i did not know that that is so interesting okay this is probably a stupid question then because i've never i just always assumed is there an actual implant there and then tissue from the stomach or wherever else to help pack around or is it just all your own body tissue just your own body tissue so usually it's either you have an implant or you have your own tissue that can be taken from your stomach or sometimes if you don't have enough tissue from your stomach they take it from your thigh can i be a donor for someone's tissue because i have plenty that i could donate for someone to make really great sets If I could sign up, I'll do it. (laughs) I don't think so. (laughs) Okay, I tried, I tried. No, that's an option. Well, you can't blame me for trying. How long is the process from making that decision, that's what I want to do, to reconstruction, to to all of that? How long is that process? 
Well, they usually get referred pretty early on when they get diagnosed with breast cancer and the team decide what kind of treatment this person have to go through. They will definitely get a consult whenever if they choose to go with mastectomy and sometimes even with lumpectomy because they may have to do breast reduction on the other side. Mm -hmm. But after that, they have to go to the surgery and depending if they need radiation or not, that's what determines like how long before they have reconstruction. Because if they don't need radiation, they can have mastectomy and reconstruction on the same day. Oh, wow. Okay. Now, if they need radiation and they have to have mastectomy, usually what happens is they have mastectomy and they got a tissue expander placed into their breast to stretch out the skin to make sure that it doesn't shrink. At, at first, it's small, and then they start filling it up with saline to kind of slowly expand it and stretch the sh- tissue slowly while they're going through radiation. And then once they're clear from radiation, I think they can have a reconstruction six months after that. So how long is a tissue expander typically in there? Until they have reconstruction. So six months could be longer than that? It could be longer than six months. So imagine they have their surgery and then they have to heal from the surgery, probably usually about four to six weeks before they have radiation. In that meantime, they also need to get their range of motion in the shoulder to be um, about 120, 125 shoulder flexion. Because to do mm. uh, because to do radiation, they're going to put their hand on a stirrup behind them to kind of open that breast and axilla up for the radiation beam to come through. So that, let's just say they have the best result and only four, six weeks, they go straight to radiation. And then you, radiation is usually 30 to 35 cycle, which means it's one, one every day, Monday to Friday. So that's about six to seven weeks. And then they have to heal for four to six months. So you're talking about that tissue expander will be there for at least six to eight months. And all of my patients tell me the tissue expander is super uncomfortable. All of them. Does why? Because is there pressure? Because does it pinch? Does it? Our body, I don't, I don't think our body like foreign object. No. Exactly. So imagine your tissue, the fat that used to be on your chest wall is now gone. And on top of that is something that is a little hard and made out of some kind of like silicone plastic. Yeah, yeah. Placed inside of you and on top of your muscle. And it has to be attached to your muscle. So it has to be like tied down, right? Stitch. So then it doesn't move around. (laughs) This is such an education for me. I thought I knew some but this like this is this is so helpful I had no idea yes no me too until I start seeing these clients and I'm like wow the process takes so long and then usually most people are not finished with just one surgery for reconstruction usually it's three to five Wow. Because first they have to reconstruct the breast and then the fat will start to settle and some will necrose and some will just stay. And then they may have to do readjustment to make sure it match, right? Because, you know, they, they want to make sure they have a matching breast. And then sometimes they have to go back in and do the tattoo for the nipple. Right. And sometimes after a few months, it may change its shape again. So you have to go back in. So I think the most I've seen in a patient is they have to go back for surgery another five times after their initial reconstruction. In your experience working with these patients, do you find, do they feel that it's worth it? Are they happy they've done it? I think it depends. A lot of my patients who are older and they went through with reconstruction, they said it's not worth it. But some people think, you know, like they need to have a breast, right? I mean, I I agree with them. I mean, if you're 40 years old, I have a patient who's 37 one time and she is single, kind of like my age right now, I'm 36. So if I were to have mastectomy right now, I probably want to have something. But now I know a little too much to be dangerous. So I don't even know if I would go through with it. 
I have a patient who actually decided to go flat. She tried to have reconstruction, having um, breast tissue expander to be put in after, and then she went through radiation, but she just had so much complication and pain and infection. So she's like, and she researched it. She talks to other people who have decided to go flat and she made that decision. And I think she's very happy with it. Yeah, I think that's a difficult, a difficult choice to come to because there's so much attached to having breasts and being a woman and everything that that is supposed to represent. And if we give that up or, you know, relinquish those, what does that mean? That's, oh gosh, that's a very difficult thing to, to think about. But I have met, you know, many women that have decided, I, I, I don't want to even take that chance. I just, I'm just, it's okay to be done with that. And, you know, I find it really interesting when I see or the pictures of or meet women who have had like the beautiful tattoos on their chest afterwards that are just very colorful and what a beautiful way to celebrate that and display your own uniqueness for making that choice. I know that is true about the beauty of tattoo. I love it too. But again, I'm a therapist who knows just a little too much. For my, my own sake, because I'm thinking, okay, so I learned that the lymphatics is super close to the skin. So if you tattoo your body, like number one, how much is the lymphatics get involved, right? And number two, actually, there's studies that shows that the, the colored ink actually has more chemicals and stuff like that. They're actually going to be more dangerous than just the black ink. But now there are options where the ink is... um more natural and less chemicals and less poisonous toxins. So, you know, if you go to the right tattoo artist, you can request the better ink, which, you know, may be better for you. So, so yeah, if, if you're considering tattoo, Heather, I would say go to Highway and make sure you find a good ink. So what you're saying is you can go through all of this, decide to celebrate your recovery, your surgery, get a tattoo, and then have lymphedema and it get aggravated by the tattoo. Can it, can it be brought on by a tattoo? Now, there is no studies that suggest that yet. So I can't say it. But if you think about the risk of um, infection after the tattoo, and infection for sure can instigate lymphedema. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I think if you do it well and you minimize your risk of infection, your likelihood is lesser. But at the same time, I probably would not do it in the area where I have surgery. That's just me, though. That's my personal choice. I might do it on my ankle, but even then, probably not. That is Amelia's disclaimer. She would not do it. Actually, I, I wouldn't either. I just... Uh... I have nothing against it in terms of like, you know, it's not the, what they call it, the look or anything. I think tattoo is super cool. I almost got one one time, but then now I learn about lymphatic system and I'm like, I can't anymore. <laughs> I just can't. Well, you know, I wouldn't do it because I would be the one in a million people that the most random thing would happen to and I would be in the hospital for weeks because of a tattoo. So now I'll just, you know, I'm good. We're good. No tattoos for me. Thanks. I think it's safe to say that if you're immunocompromised, probably tattoo will not be a good option. And also, you know, early on in my career, Heather, I was working in an acute care hospital and I met an elderly couple who's maybe in their 70, 75, 76, and their whole body is full and covered with tattoo. Huh, okay. Not only that, they also smoke. So, you know, I think I, I don't believe in smoking. That's also my disclaimer because of my health practitioner belief. But, you know, when you smoke, your skin becomes more, more dull. So imagine a s- saggy colored tattoo that is dull at the same time. I'm also imagining them to be lifelong sun tanners or sunbathers where they also like really tan. 
That is true. Yes. Yes. I knew how to imagine them in my head. That's exactly what I was seeing. Mm -hmm. Yes. So since, since that experience, I'm like, okay, if I have a tattoo, I would look like that when I'm 70. You, Amelia, you also showed me not too long ago, but you showed me, was it a picture? You showed me a picture of someone who had lymphedema. I believe it was their arm that got a tattoo in their arm and it like went just totally awry. Was it Facebook or something like that? Somebody was like, help, I've got lymphedema and I got this tattoo and now my arm's doing like this crazy stuff. Remember I think that? I remember that. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think it was me. <laughs> it was you. Like nobody else would come up to me and tell me that and show me that. That is true. I, I know. Yeah, that was wild. I know. It is wild. I mean, we can talk about tattoo all day long because I, I, I love tattoos. I mean, I'm telling you, I, I think tattoo is a very creative expression. But at the same time, I'm like, okay, 10, 10 20, 30 years from now, what's going to happen? Oh. Is it worth it? No, yuck, no. But anyway, I think kind of going back to just reconstruction process, right? I think mm -hmm. a lot of women, you know, when they get in, they just know, oh, I'm going to have a new breast and I'm going to have reconstruction. Some people go through the one option where they use their own body fat, but some people can't even have that option if they're, they don't have enough fat in their body to actually produce that. Because then the option is going through your thigh, but then you'll end up with this long scar on your thigh and then you have to recover from it, right? Because they take tissue out of your thigh. Yeah. That's another thing. And then the second option is using implants, which is not as natural as your own tissue. So your breast tends to look a little bit more reconstructed. And number two, I think implants also only last for 10 years, 10 or 15 years, you have to replace them. So you mm. have to go back and having another surgery. And another thing that just kind of recently happened is that there is an implant style that was really popular because it looks like a teardrop. But actually that implant, I think shown to have like some sort of a defect. So people have to go back in and take out those implants to prevent further health issues. Does any of this get covered? So if they do a silicone implant, how much of that gets covered by insurance? And then the follow-up question would be, if they know that it has to get replaced in 10 to 15 years, does insurance then cover that as well? The first part, I know it is covered by insurance because many of my patients have reconstruction that right after their cancer treatment, it is covered. Now, the replacement, I'm not really sure. That is a really good question. Yeah, I'd, I'd be interested to know that. My guess would be no, but you never know with some insurances. That's interesting. Oh, you talked about them getting referred to you. Do you know estimation or ballpark figures about women or men, really, I guess, or ballpark figures of people getting referred to you for prehab or rehab for breast cancer? Ballpark figure. That's a good that's a good. Because I, I, I can tell you in the literature for speech pathology for head and neck cancer, the referrals that we have in the literature are approximately 1% of all diagnoses get referred. I think with breast cancer, literature has said that it's 9% that actually got referred. Nine. Mm-hmm. Nine. Nine. Yes. We talked about it earlier, like all the side effects of cancer treatment, right? You're talking about surgery, the scar, the swelling that comes with surgery, the possibility of lymphedema, and then you have 
the pain that comes with the scar sometimes, right? Because everybody's body sensitivity is so different. And then number two, you may have chemotherapy. We talk about chemo brain. We talk about, we didn't mention it, but peripheral neuropathy, cancer-related fatigue, all that stuff with chemo. And then not to mention that they may have some, because I'm thinking about liver toxicity. You have anesthesia and chemotoxicity in your liver. Not saying that physical therapy, OT or speech can cover it, but I think what are we doing to get them to detox and cleanse their body again after a cancer treatment? I think it's important to know because you have to have an awareness of that to incorporate their participation, their activity, their overall state of health during therapy. And then if they're in the hospital and you are an acute care therapist and you're looking at their labs or they're in inpatient rehab or a skilled nursing facility and they're having labs done and you're looking at those labs, you can kind of get an idea of some of that functioning level. So I think that is relevant. And then we're talking about radiation. I mean, you know firsthand the impact of radiation to head and neck patients, but for patient with breast cancer, if it's on the left breast and you have radiation there, your left breast is pretty close to your heart. Right. So you have to monitor your heart very closely during radiation. Because I have met some patient whose heart and lungs get affected because of radiation and they develop bronchitis, they develop heart issues, all because of radiation. Not to mention the radiation fibrosis that can happen in your muscle and how it just comes and go where you're overusing it. And then all of a sudden you have this heart muscle, heart knot. And then finally, with we talk about arm lymphedema all the time, but I don't think we talk enough about breast edema or breast lymphedema. Yeah. When you lost lymph nodes, you lost the side of the structure that helps your brain breast to drain. The tissue, if you have radiation in your breast and you had lumpectomy, the tissue in your breast is not the same anymore. So I've seen patients, especially if the radiation happened years and years ago, that their breast that had the lumpectomy becomes very hard, like a rock. Mm-hmm. Maybe not exactly a rock, but it, it feels like leather to me when I touch it. Yeah. I don't think we talk enough about that because most people were just told that, oh, your swelling will go away eventually. But I think we should educate them and say, hey, after six months, if your swelling doesn't go away, you may have what we call breast edema or breast lymphedema. And these are the ways that you can manage them. Right. Because they don't realize that it's, it's not your typical swelling and why it's not just, oh, this area was traumatized from the surgery or from the treatment and it just needs time to recover because I think a lot of people tend to think it's like any other surgery or when they have a cut or when they sprain their ankle and they think it's just that type of swelling that'll just go away on its own over time. And after, like you said, six months for some people, a year, two years, three years, four years, huh, it's still there. I wonder why that hasn't gone away yet. That's a bigger thing. It's a bigger problem. And then if they have a history of trauma in that affected side that may have impaired the lymphatic early on, that may even cause it to be more at risk for lymphedema. And we, we, we are not at the point where we assess those risk factors, really, when we look at lymphedema after cancer. Like we look at, oh, do you have lymph nodes removal? Do you have radiation? Do you have chemotherapy? Because, you know, now standard practice is more... If you have lower stage cancer, they will take a couple, two or five lymph nodes from your axilla to just test to see if they have cancer or not. And if they don't have cancer, that's great. But when you combine removing five nodes from your armpit combined with chemotherapy and radiation, research shows that your risk for lymphedema goes up to 30 plus percent. Wow. That's a significant number for just even a small 
small amount taken. And I think people need to really be aware of that. Yes. And initially, you know, lymphedema presents itself like heaviness. You just feel the arm is a little heavy and it doesn't feel the same anymore. And most people won't realize that they actually have swelling that can be managed early on until it becomes more permanent. When there's a discrepancy between your affected arm and the non-affected arm, and then you start feeling like, oh, when I wear my long sleeve, one side fits and the other side doesn't fit. That's when people realize that they have lymphedema. But I think we can detect them early on. I mean, there's a lot of technology right now, bioimpedance, moisture meter, none of which I have in my clinic, but it's so cool to read about it in the literature. But I also, you know, if you practice long enough, I mean, I can feel now when an arm is a little bit more swollen compared to the others, even if the measurement doesn't show it. And I can teach a patient, okay, this is how you, this is your normal arm. This is not, this is the affected side. This is what you want to look for because they need to know the sign. They need to empower themselves so that they know what to do. Right. So do these patients that present to you like this, do they show up in a typical occupational therapy clinic or physical therapy clinic saying, you know, I'm just, my arm just feels weird or my shoulder feels weird. And then maybe an orthotherapist or somebody else is looking at them saying, you know, yeah, maybe, or yeah, you have this surgery. So let's just do some massage or they're not really addressing it. Or how do these people finally end up to you or other places? So I guess maybe my question is what I'm trying to ask is if they end up at other places, how can, how can you make, how can you ask the right questions or know what to do? Get them referred to you. How, how can people recognize this to get them referred to the right place? In our facility, what we do is we make sure that everybody who has a history of breast cancer is seen by somebody who's certified in lymphedema. So I think if you don't have that in your facility, then you definitely need to refer out Make sure that if you have a patient who have a breast cancer diagnosis, especially recently, you check for that swelling in the arm and making sure that you don't re-traumatize the arm because then you can cause the lymphedema to get worse. I mean, I've heard about it before and I've seen it before. Mm-hmm. You know, because a lot of them also can have like, they may not notice a swelling right away, but when their shoulder doesn't move and they have quote unquote frozen shoulder, that's what they complain about because all of a sudden you cannot reach your arm anymore. And even then... I have met some people who believe that this is my life. I would never forget. I met a woman in a support group. She was 50 years old. She didn't speak English. Her surgery was a year prior. And she only have about shoulder flexion to the shoulder height, 90 degrees shoulder flexion. And she thought that's the way life will be. That is heartbreaking. So we're touching like to another territory, which is this woman doesn't have I think at that time she didn't have insurance. So when you don't have insurance and you need to go to therapy, therapy is expensive. Mm-hmm. There's less access to care. So I think we talk about, I think we start talking about it more that there's a health disparity and, you know, the disparity in access to care. And like some people may not never advocate for themselves to go to therapy for a different reason. Finance is one of them. Maybe they're not aware that they don't have to live this way. And number three, it's like, Education, you know, if they never go to that support group, they may never know because I I was there as a guest speaker talking about lymphedema and I talked to this woman. I never seen her in my clinic, so I don't know if she goes somewhere else. I hope she did. Wow. Do you find that this patient population is fairly proactive at seeking treatment and advocating for themselves? 
because we know some treatment populations are not and are quite, (laughs) quite adverse actually at making any improvements for themselves. What, what do you feel about this treatment population? I think it's 50, 50 really, because I have met some women who are super educated especially the younger ones, right? They're super educated and they're like really looking for resources because they want to go back to their previous way of life. You know, these are the women who exercise, they have young kids, they have work to go back to and they're advocating for themselves. However, I also see another generation of women who may be in their 50s or 60s, but they're still working full-time to support their family. I mean, sometimes they can't even make it to therapy because, Amelia, I have to work. If I, if I miss work one more time, I'm going to lose my job. Mm. So, and then, or they have high risk for lymphedema, but because they're working in a job that is required physical lifting, physical ability, I mean, they're putting them, themselves at high risk for repetitive use of their arm. And there's no way they can change their job because that's the only option they have. You know, I met a woman who works in a cafeteria. And she's a part of our own hospital and her manager is not making any accommodation for her. But because she doesn't speak great English, again, this is another theme. Mm -hmm. She was just told that, hey, you either show up or you might lose your job. And she is very afraid to lose her job. And she's not the kind of woman who's going to go to HR and say that, hey, I've been, I'm not being given the accommodation that I deserve. Sad thing is, is that that's not an isolated story and that, oh, that burns me up. What happens to these people? Like, what happens to these people? And this is where I find that advocacy and getting them early if we can, even just to show them a few things, that education, that quick here. If you don't do anything else, do these things. Yes. You have to. You have to. And, you know, I think making that impression is important because I feel like if the only thing that I get from my visit with them is that they trust me enough that they will go back when they have issues. I feel like I have accomplished my role over there because I want to make sure you may not have issues right now, but if you do, they will trust me enough, trust my words enough to want to go back and find me if they remember, right? If they remember. But I think that is really important because we want to be that contact person Then you know, if they never come back to us, I cannot advocate for them. Right they trust me enough to come back, then I can tell them, okay, this is what we need to do together to get this arm smaller or to to improve your shoulder range of motion. You make a very valid point. You've got to leave that memorable impression and that nugget of information of there is help and hope out there should this arise. Yes. And that's kind of the art of especially, I think, the art that we have as a therapist, especially in talking about lymphedema, because we don't want to give them an ultimatum that you will have lymphedema because I don't want to be that person to tell them that they don't have hope anymore. But at the same time, you have to tell them with authority that this may happen, but with enough compassion that they don't feel judged or they feel condemned. And I think sometimes I've heard it from patients where the black and whiteness of therapists can come across as cold and not understanding. And there's no way they're going to go back to that same therapist. Yeah, you may. Yeah, you're right. And I think people come from a good place and a well-meaning place, but that you have to do this. This is going to happen. If you don't do this, we're not going to treat you. You're not going to be able to come back for more visits if you don't make this 
whatever it is. It's not a good rapport to build and it doesn't instill faith. It doesn't instill any type of hope for your your patient that they can do what you're asking them to do. That we have to remember that, that this is something we need to sell to them to do pretty much for the rest of their life, but they're not, they don't know this yet. And it's up to us to like kind of gently coax them along and tell them this without like hitting them over the head with it. Yes. We kind of have to put ourselves in that person's shoes. If I'm this person, would I be able to do everything that this person tell me to do on a daily basis? I mean, I think about my patient all the time. I mean, we're kind of going to my soapbox now. When I went to learn about lymphedema therapy, this is seven, seven years ago, my school at that time really don't believe in pneumatic pump, which is a machine that you put on that helps you to push your fluid back to the body because they're like, oh, that, that defeats a purpose. It can be too hard. Human touch is the best, which is true. However, now lymphatic pump has become so much more um, advanced too. So it's, it's way better than seven years ago. But also at the same time, I'm thinking to myself, I think that's what really changed me because at first I was like, oh, no pump, no pump. But then I think one of the representatives told me like, you know, this pump is actually really good for people who are younger, who may not have the time to actually do the massage. And I'm like, okay, if I'm the patient and I'm teaching them to do this massage to do for the rest of my life, will I actually comply and do it? Most likely no, because if they have kids, if they have a family to cook for, a house to clean, a job, most women will put their needs last. And then to add that you have to do this massage in your body for like 10, 15 minutes, forget about it. I mean, even with the pump, half of them are not compliant. So, you know, I already tried to make it easy for them. <laughs> I'm all about recommending what's what's going to make the patient be as compliant as possible. Because like, as you mentioned earlier, compliance is number one when it comes to home program. We can design the best home program in the world, the most evidence-based, the most effective. But if the patient doesn't do it, it doesn't mean anything. Agreed. Absolutely agree. Kind of switching topics slightly. When you're with these patients and doing your evaluation or just treating with them, do you or your colleagues or as the OTs or the lymphedema specialist, do you guys have anywhere in your screening or whatnot, like for are you having any swallowing problems? Are you having any thinking problems? So like, you know, um, concentrating, remembering what you want to say, word finding, that type of thing? We don't. Not on a formal basis. So I think we need to do a better job with that. But I mean, I know that when they mention, they would mention certain things. But, you know, sometimes it doesn't come up in the conversation. It will, it will never come up. So I think it's, yes, I think we need a screening tool that they can take home with them. And they can bring it back so then we can be aware. So I have to admit, I am the worst when it comes to outcome measure. I'm better with it <laughs> and making sure that that happens. So yes, we can definitely improve in that for sure. Because I think there is like a distress uh, scale. Right. And they have like a little questionnaire where you, you have different questions where you can refer. So I think I definitely need to implement that more with my patient. But at the same time, also, you know, there's just so much to cover, number one. And number two, I can hardly keep up with my documentation and I have to keep up with one more thing. So there's, I think we need to make it easier, maybe like put it up where people can see it, maybe put it as a literature that people can pick up. So then 
Well, I'm thinking of even as they might be doing it in the doctor's office, but I don't know where that goes. But I'm even thinking as just when you check in for your valuation and you're doing your valuation paperwork as they're doing it up front or wherever they're at, of course, this is outpatient. They have just a quick, quick little questionnaire, which then if the answers to a couple things automatically flags a speech referral, because there's a few things that I have seen get missed for years in several patients. And so I'd need to look up what those numbers are, but who've had dysphagia in their upper esophagus, lower pharynx, sometimes in their esophagus, but they just don't realize that's what's happening. And it's because of the radiation. And they just assume that that's just normal. That's just what's happening now um, until it gets to a point where it gets tighter and tighter and tighter. The same thing with where they're having difficulty finding words. They might be having some difficulty with their memory or even some word confusion, but they just think, okay, it's, I'm just getting older. I'm just gone through all this stuff. I've got so much on my mind. That's just, that's like you were saying, that's just it. This is who I am now. But there's things that we can do to help with that. I wonder how many people suffer through those things thinking that that's just their life now, where they could really be getting some help with that. I would think that most people probably think that that's just their life now. So, you know, I think we can definitely do another conversation on this alone, just talking about cognitive changes after a different type of cancer. Mm-hmm. Because it's a huge thing and it's something that is, we see a lot of our patients who have head and neck cancer and breast cancer. But what about prostate cancer? What about colon cancer? How about all the other cancer that are lost? Yes. And they don't talk about, but it's actually quite debilitating as well. So, I mean, I think that's a whole topic in itself. Prostate cancer, up to 69% reported a decline in at least one cognitive area, usually visual, spatial, or executive functioning. (laughs) That explains so much. Right. I'm just going to leave it there, but that explains so much. Exactly. So, I mean, I think we're going back to like, if we screen these things early, and intervene early, then maybe maybe we won't have as much rate of dementia. I mean, how much is that is caused by some of these changes that we have? I don't know. I mean, I'm just totally making this up right now. But I'm just saying that I totally believe that, you know, the, the faster we can prevent is, is better than trying to cure something that is incurable. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. And, um, you know, I go back to our thinking about the patient and the individual going through with, the, with these diagnoses asking these questions that are the questions of like these different areas of how they're functioning. Some people would say, well, that's not my area. I only do this. And that's not my area. I only do that. And I don't have time to ask all these questions. But I would challenge that and say, we have a whole person in front of us who doesn't function in these little tiny silos. Mm-hmm. So wouldn't we be doing them a favor and be doing us all a favor, not even a favor, wouldn't we be doing them what is right by treating that whole person and actually we'd be being more effective at everyone's treatments by incorporating all therapies and asking all those questions, just looking at that whole person? Yes, I think for sure. We, we do have the time, maybe not initially, you know, like initially you have so much stuff that you need to give them, but as they come for treatment, we talk about everything. I mean, you know, like when my patient comes to see me, like we talk from grandkids all the way to their marriage and 
all the things sometimes that I don't want to know about. But right. But I mean, you know, it's kind of fun because you get to know the person truly, like how are their kids doing? It becomes like you're seeing a friend. So, I mean, definitely there's room for it. Well, and thinking like what Carissa told us, you know, her story, I want to say her story is unique, but it's becoming, I think, less unique because of her age. Like when you hear someone in their mid to late 30s having, they have a baby, they're breastfeeding, and now they have breast cancer and they're an active professional those aren't something that you tie together and think this should go together. That shouldn't happen. We are seeing this more and more. And these, the things that she does in her life, everything she walked us through with um, her daily life with, you know, with her, her family, but then add on top of it, all the visits she had, everything else she had to do to plan. And then those plans get turned upside down. I, I really am appreciative of her for sharing that because that gives us insight into what our what our patients do just to make it to therapy or what our patients do just to make it through a day to make it to survivorship. Absolutely. Some patients don't eat lunch at work so they can come to therapy at the end of the day or they come in the middle of the day during their lunch so they can have therapy. There are sacrifices for patients to come to therapy, especially people who are working, people who are having to take care of a family member after. So I don't take it lightly when my patient cancel. Like I always try to reschedule them if I can in my schedule or I always make sure that I follow up with them because I know that it costs them to come to therapy. I just kind of want to leave with this thought too. I just as a professional reminder, because I always think we're charging the insurance company every 15 minutes. If I were to pay this 15 minutes out of pocket, would that be worth it? That's what I think about whenever I see my patient. That's why I try to cram so much and try to make sure that I do things with them instead of just watching them do things. Because those two are two different things, right? I mean, yes, you can watch them do things, observing and making sure that you're analyzing, you're using your clinical judgment. That's absolutely correct. But then if you're just there, yeah, that is my pet peeve. You know, I've told, I think I've told you this story. I went to outpatient physical therapy for a little bit for my neck a few years ago. And one session, literally highly respected place. He told me to draw the alphabet on the wall, do it two, three times, and he'd be back in a few minutes. And I'm thinking it's 26 letters. How long is it going to take me to write the alphabet on the wall? He was gone almost 20 minutes. I was going at seven in the morning before work. I was thinking about how valuable my time is, all the notes I could be writing, all the different things I could be doing, then waiting for my therapist to come over and tell me what to do instead of talking to the other group of therapists across the room while I finished writing my three sets of alphabet letters. So I appreciate you for thinking about the, it's not even the monetary, it's not even the monetary part of, of the the value of therapy in 15 minute increments to me it's the life gains in 15 minutes right i totally with you on that one and i tell all of my patients like or anybody that i meet you don't have to come see me but if you're seeing a therapist for pain or for acute pain and they don't do anything hands-on leave and get a different provider yes preach preach i i guess we can talk about this all day long so (laughs) 
you know, I think we are wrapping up some of this thought about breast cancer, but I know like we're going to continue digging in with other side effects of cancer because we're going to head into head and neck and head and neck cancer next, discussing about the implication, the topics, because I discovered head and neck cancer when I was a student in 2009 in California. And that literally changed my life because I feel like I've never seen anything like it before. So I cannot wait to dig in next time. I look forward to the discussion as well. My experience was, first experience was 16 years ago in a level one trauma hospital when I would beg my supervisor, please do not send me to the cancer floor. Please don't send me to the cancer floor. Don't do it. And now it's it's a passion of mine. So stay tuned. Yeah, stay tuned for next week. So have a good day. Good day? Good night? I don't know. Good day or night, whatever you are. Please subscribe to the Spot Check from your provider of choice. Show notes and links can be found at the spotcheckpodcast.com. Follow us on Instagram. Amelia is the lymph therapist and Heather is the medical SLP.